there is a grotesque phenomenon that has carried on for nearly three decades now. And it's called feminicide. Young poor women being killed at excruciatingly high rates just because they are young poor women. The dehumanization, the rationalization, the lack of accountability, the almost cultic calculation of these murders. What has been occurring in Juarez is unimaginable. This was a disturbing enough topic that I called some people before the sermon just to let them know that I'd be talking about this. I'll spare the detailed accounts of feminicide, but I invite those who, who dare to look at difficult realities to pick up and read Nancy Pineda Madrid's book called Suffering and Salvation in Ciudad Juarez. Reading this book was a painful experience. It took me a month and one that made despair rise up in me. How can something like this possibly be? I was partly drawn to the book because the title included Ciudad Juarez. It's become a city I hear about often in one of our programs that we operate out of this church. For the past three years, we have run a company now. And a company now works with children. Our youngest child is two and our oldest is 17. Our caseworkers interacted in the past 12 months with nearly 600 kids from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Mexico who came across the border alone or together as sibling sets, like the two-year-old did, without being accompanied by an adult. Often in this program, I think how sad that children are crossing alone in Juarez, and it is sad. But after reading this book, all I could think was, thank you, God, for each child, especially each niña, who has safely made it through Juarez and across the border. But I decided to read this theological reflection birthed from the context of feminicide in Juarez, not because I needed to know the ins and outs of that particular suffering or because of the city name, but more because I was intrigued by the word salvation in the title of a book like this. We've spent a Lenten series here at RCHP reflecting on salvation, on deliverance, specifically on how it is that Christ delivers us. We've asked what Jesus saves us from and what Jesus saves us for. We've learned that Christ in his living, dying, and rising engaged us in incarnational friendship. We reflected on how Christ was victorious over the devil and all principalities and powers once and for all, Christus Victor. We learned about the power of Christ substituting in for us in our brokenness, standing in that we might be completely restored to God, even after we thought that was an impossibility. We rejoiced that Christ's love is irresistible. We pondered what it means that in Christ's living, dying, and resurrection, our very ontology, our being has changed, or more aptly, that we been restored to our truest form. All the different glimmers of light that we've considered are key aspects of deliverance given by God in and through Christ. But what about Ciudad Juarez? Have we learned what deliverance looks like for the us who are poor women and their families living and suffering in Juarez? Some of the themes I just mentioned surely bring essential comfort, endurance, hope, divine connection to the suffering people in that city. But I would argue that none of the deliverance themes so far sufficiently help address what salvation looks like if you are a victimized community facing gratuitous evil. When the police are too afraid of the gangs to stop anything, when the police have been infiltrated and are maybe completely taken over by the gangs, when the 
Catholic Church there, and all churches really, but especially the Catholic as it's tied so much to the state, is afraid of the police and the gangs. When the systems that are supposed to create some form of safety are ridiculously unsafe, what do you do as vulnerable communities? Is there deliverance? Is there salvation? Is there hope? And what do you do if the global community, rather than helping you out of this suffering, just builds a world that further exacerbates it and dehumanizes you too? Feminist side in Ciudad Juarez became a phenomenon in lockstep with the launch of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Same year. The newly globalized economy worked men and women nearly to death in sweatshops along the border, which they flocked to from more impoverished towns around Mexico. The maquiladoras, the foreign-owned border factories that promised hope from poverty resulting from NAFTA, created new forms of suffering, humiliation, and stratification in Mexico. And additionally, as a result of NAFTA, millions of laborers economically and socially died, if you will, in their own country, therefore coming to the United States without papers in increasingly large numbers to quote, and tell me if you've ever heard this, do the jobs Americans don't want to do, reinforcing the stereotype that somehow Mexicans are built to be laborers, that somehow the lives of these people are less valuable than the lives of others. How is Christ the deliverer in Juarez, and how is Christ addressing the factors that create violence and dehumanization and trickle down into things like feminicide in Juarez? And how about Galilee and Judea? Jesus stomping ground later in the first century after his death and resurrection. How was he deliverer for the desperately poor and occupied communities there? How about in every Roman vassal state like Galilee and Judea? What about every impoverished woman and man in the Mediterranean globalized world forced to operate as cogs in the first century Roman Empire economy? What did poverty make them do? How did poverty and power undo their historic systems of family and networks of care? You'll do what you have to do to make ends meet. You'll work to the bone to feed your kids. You'll do things that are unbecoming if it keeps your family alive. And your oppressors, those centurions, what do they see? Those soldiers on the street, those policemen, do they see you as you are at the core, a beloved child of God? Or do they see the core that you've become as that beaten down person that the system forced you to become as you scraped and scratched out of life? Do the soldiers forget that is why? Do the poor even forget that that is why? When does all the sickness and sin in society get so normalized that feminicide and worker abuse and abject poverty and other egregious sin-filled atrocities become just the way it is? One way to confront demonic powers and gratuitous evil is through uprisings and revolutions and insurgencies. And I have deep respect for uprisings, and I'm often thankful for the moral clarity that drives them. The New Testament, however, doesn't, doesn't give us too many examples of those. Jesus doesn't go head-to-head -head with Caesar's troops. Jesus even waits until the end of his ministry to go to Jerusalem and toward confrontation with Roman and Sanhedrin rulers. And when he finally did rise up, he did so weaponless and got even super upset when one of his people pulled out a sword. He gathered 5,000 in a field up in Galilee, 80 miles away from Jerusalem, that they might receive his teachings and a, and a free lunch. But in Jerusalem, he didn't risk bringing a massive crowd of his troops so as to incite a violent response. 
And given what we know historically about how Rome dealt with revolutionaries and their followers, it was the wisdom of Christ that only he and not thousands of disciples died during Holy Week that year. If he'd played things differently, there would have been a massacre. Roman soldiers were in Jerusalem in force to provide a military presence for the Passover. But revolutions are not the only way to liberation. Resistance which is such a key element of revolutions and uprisings, can be made manifest in other ways. And friends of God, I want to assert today that creative communal resistance was a form of deliverance that God launched through Christ's spirit-infused disciples, through Jesus' death, resurrection, and the outpouring of the, of the Holy Spirit that followed. And that creative communal resistance continues today in the church and beyond. Spirit-filled communal resistance can occur in many different types of communities, let me start with today's passage in Caesarea Maritime, the Roman capital of the Judean province, speaking of one example of the birth of spirit-filled communal resistance. And then I'll move back to Ciudad Juarez. The Apostle Paul was hiding out at Simon the Tanner's house. He was staying in a small city maybe 30 miles south, Joppa it was called, south of Caesarea Maritima, which was the Judean capital. Um, tanner, tanning hides to make leather for products was possibly a ritually unclean profession, and it was definitely a stinky one. There's a reason why tanners lived by the sea. And while he was hiding out there, fearful of Jewish Sanhedrin forces and anxious to squash the Jesus movement, God gave him a vision while he was asleep one day up on the roof. And the topic was what's clean and unclean. And I won't go into the details here, but Peter awoke from that nap on that flat roof rethinking who he might engage with the gospel message, especially if he didn't have to worry about, as a Jewish Christian man, what purity laws he had to keep. And almost immediately as he awoke, a voice called from downstairs, Peter, there are Roman guards here, and they're asking for you. Oh, great. Right? And it was guards from Caesarea Maritima. Cornelius, that centurion guard, had a vision from God, and he wants to see you. Okay, God, I was just beginning to ponder crossing the Jewish-Gentile divide because of that vision, but you're sending me to a Roman guard from the capital. That's not what I had in mind. Peter entertained the visiting emissaries from Cornelius and then joined them on a 30-mile journey north. The scripture reading that you heard Noah read this morning was Peter's profound spoken word, his, his sermon in Cornelius' house. God's spirit hadn't just moved Peter to any Roman household, we learn. The spirit sent him to a house of a God-fearer, a guard with a conscience, a guard trying to figure out how to be a Roman guard in a broken world in ways that were life-affirming and not life-destroying. He was sent to a guard who also was having visions from God about new community in Christ. And Peter, in that space, with new acquaintances, with people wearing the oppressor's military garb, said, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's what he was about, doing good and freeing folks from the devil. He was changing all of our lives. And then your guards and our temple forces put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to everybody, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses. And while Peter was still speaking, Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and those Gentile oppressors started speaking in tongues and extolling God. 
Friends, resistance in the case of today's passage meant responding to the Spirit's urging to go and talk to one open guard and his people. Resistance led to an outpouring of the Spirit. It led to a new community being asked to speak Jesus' transforming anti-oppression language. And the more that this godly language is being spoken and lived, the more resistance to the status quo there will be. For God language is kingdom of God language, and the kingdom of God is about doing good and freeing people from the devil. The kingdom of God is about resisting the kingdoms of oppression. So friends of God, hear the good news. The crucified and risen Christ released the spirit upon Cornelius and a community of his soldiers in ways that contributed to their joining the Jesus movement of resisting evil. Who knows, maybe Peter and Paul and the other apostles' ability to move with relative freedom around the Roman Empire, sharing the word, was made possible by Cornelius and his transformed community. Oh, that Ciudad Juarez might have some Cornelius's in its police force or in its political administration. They are yet to be found. People tried to help find they tried to find help from the government and systems when the feminicide started to be recognized as a phenomenon. From the mid to late 90s, protesters went straight to government officials demanding help. Open letters to the governor of Chihuahua went unanswered, or in one infamous response, Governor Terrazas responded that, quote, the young women victims are to blame for provocative dress and walking in poorly lit areas, unquote. Suffering parents and community members tried to find help within their churches, but the churches have been disturbingly silent about anything of this world, choosing instead to focus on salvation as something for a future world. Didn't the church know what Peter told, what Peter told Cornelius, that Jesus came to do good and to heal all those oppressed by the devil on this earth? But resistance and deliverance born of the Spirit has found its way to Juarez, into the lives of other powerful people, the powerful, poor, and oppressed themselves. And that's where the really good news is today. By the late 90s and early 2000s, resistance groups largely led by mothers and fathers and spouses and friends of victims were springing up throughout Juarez. Voices seen echo, voices without an echo. Ocho de Marzo, the 8th of March, which is International Women's Day. Nuestras hijas de regreso a casa, may our daughters return home. And many other groups, these were all born. And in that context, in that, in that context, which is made up of a culturally religious people who are now in a non-church activist community, they started seeing the power of Christ and of their religious symbols. They started seeing them like never before. Those in these new communities of faith, I'll call them, saw that their fearlessness and clarity about what life should be like came from their relationship with Jesus, and they started using religious art from scriptures and meta-narratives from scripture about religion and religiously motivated performance activism to transform the conversation about their daughters. And their marches were planned in community around national and international days that challenge death and celebrate women or, or highlight real love Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, November 1, became a key day. International Women's Day, March 8th. Valentine's Day, February 14th. Three of the key ones. They strategically used those days that raised the conscience of the public and that moved and motivated the media. And they marched together, often using language of the Exodus, calling the marches Exodo por Vida, Exodus for Life. And after various attempts at symbols that expressed their deepest concern, they settled on pink crosses as the definition of their struggle for salvation for their young daughters, saying pink expressed youthfulness and life. 
And the city of Juarez is now covered with pink crosses at every place where a young woman over the last 30 years has tragically lost her life. And we can just look at those if you want. Pineda Madrid says, as these crosses have become increasingly numerous, they have undoubtedly signaled the, the growing nightmare that grips Juarez. They likewise signal a stubborn will to keep the memory of these tragic murders alive and to confront the city, state, nation, and international community with their own complicity in this abomination. So friends of God, what is happening theologically in Juarez? Pineda Madrid says, the human condition invariably entails a conscious longing for salvation, a longing for a reality greater than the fragmentary, chaotic, at times irrational experience that is our experience of living, unquote. Those groups empowered by the Spirit, utilizing the symbol of the horror of the crucifixion, but utilizing it to say, no mas, are, it seems to me, Holy Spirit-charged resistance communities, i.e. the church as it should be. These are the groups that will eventually reshape a world that will either produce new Corneliuses, God-fearing people in power who eventually rise to the top, or they may be the groups that create a world where there are no more need for Corneliuses at all. These groups in Ciudad Juarez, as they embody the kingdom of God through practices of resistance, do more than point to the primacy and power of community, says Pineda Madrid. They ideally suggest that salvation in history is furthered to the degree that the spiritual unity of the world is made more visible. Friends of God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit-filled Messiah, is risen today. Crosses will not win. Christ is victorious, Christus victor. But the world is still full of crosses, and they are abhorrent, and they must be put on display with all fanfare and pageantry as long as they still exist, that we might say with Christ and with the people of Ciudad Juarez, no mas. And the church at its best must find ways to join God's work of destroying all forms of violence and death and oppression. And we'll do that best when we pay attention to communities where the spirit is creating resistance and calling for resistance. Theologian Elizabeth Johnson writes, the very framing of the atonement conversation as Jesus and salvation is too narrow. Salvation comes from God through Jesus by the power of the spirit. It's the gift of the whole triune God. To concentrate on Jesus alone is a kind of Christomonism and has led historically to many dead ends for understanding, as well as to imperialist actions toward those who do not believe in Christ. She continues, as history goes on after the historical Jesus, salvation is primarily a spirit phenomenon. And it's the spirit who provides the connection between the historical Jesus and the present community and who empowers the present experience of salvation. I think she's absolutely right. Friends, it's good news that the spirit has led groups of hurting families and neighbors to form organizations and coalitions. The spirit has given them creative ideas for theatrical resistance 
marches and pink crosses. The Spirit has given them wisdom so as to connect their hurt and their hope to national and international days. The Spirit has also moved them at times from advocacy to programming so that those who march are also those who successfully fundraise to create a crisis center for women who have or are, or are currently experiencing sexual violence in Juarez. The Spirit community is growing and it's growing in ways that are powerful but that do not risk but do not run the risk of violent undoing by the gangs and the corrupted government. The bursts of lots of small resistance groups, some with names and some without, are harder to put down than a formal insurrection or revolution. And it reminds me of the bursts that were the new churches that were planted in the Roman Empire, small, seemingly inconsequential, but packed with the subversive power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul and others were planting around the Mediterranean. Is this salvation? Feminicide continues in Juarez. The profundity of sin and death still has a grip. Are the resistance communities the best God in Christ can do? I'll never trust that God is done. Through Christ and Spirit, God can and always is doing more than we can see to bring down every tree of crucifixion. But this I know. These fragments that we see, these communities of resistance and hope, have claimed a space, and they are the embodiment of salvation. They are the embodiment of very God in Christ by the power of the Spirit. They may be fragments. They're surely not complete. But every fragment of salvation is salvation nonetheless. And I'm thankful today for salvation in Juarez. I'm thankful for salvation in every favela in Brazil and every barrio in Ecuador every border city in Mexico, and every neighborhood in New York. I'm thankful for the burst of salvation that we have right here at RCHP, a, frag, a fragment gaining a foothold in history. And may we continue to take on the devil in every relevant devilish form of militarism, racism, exploitation, and pain, that we might be a fragment of salvation. And may we encourage and connect with other resistant communities embodying fragments of salvation inside and outside the formal church, and we, that we all may be one, incorporated as a full humanity on this earth into the life of our triune deliverer. Thanks be to God. Amen.